Hello and welcome to the Revolution Will Not Be podcast. I'm Paul Feldman, Communications Editor for the Real Democracy Movement. Today I'm pleased to be joined by Jason W. Moore, who coordinates the World Ecology Research Collective. Jason is an environmental historian and historical geographer at Binghamton University, which is part of New York State University, where he is Professor of Sociology. He is author or editor, most recently, of Capitalism in the Web of Life and a History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. Jason, thanks for joining us. Question. COP27 is taking place in Egypt with the UN Secretary General saying the world is on the highway to hell unless action is taken. What do you make of his statement and what do you think are the prospects for a meaningful deal? Well, no prospects whatsoever for a meaningful deal. As for Guterres and the invocation of the climate crisis as an existential threat, let's first recognize that the environmentalism of the rich has been making this kind of argument since 1968 with uh, the population bomb by Anne and Paul Ehrlich and then endlessly repeated ever since. Now, having said that, of course, the climate crisis is absolutely disastrous absolutely catastrophic in the daily lives of hundreds of millions of people at this very moment. You have, what, the eighth most populous country in the world, Pakistan, absolutely totally flooded uh, and underwater. That is no question about it, an existential crisis for many of those specific human beings. However, let's remember that the fusion of existential politics with emergency politics is really the hallmark of the political right and has been used as an excuse for authoritarianism and abstract planetary managerialism for a long time. So we want to be careful about this kind of rhetoric, which has now become really commonplace. It's not just Guterres, it's eco-socialists, it's the IMF, existential threat, this, that, and the other. And it really comes out of, in part, the IPC and other climate modelers who are forbidden from assuming that the climate crisis will disrupt capitalism. So they have to build in capitalism as usual into their models. Okay, so you're saying there's a certain amount of hysteria, which doesn't help to get to the bottom of things. That's what you're saying. Well, there's a kind of, uh, there's a kind of catastrophism that has very, very long roots in modern power and ideology, going back to Malthus and in some ways even earlier, the idea, the invention of an eternal conflict between man and nature. Think about Hobbes and the Hobbesian view of the world. Well, Hobbes was writing not just in the midst of the English Civil War and all the turbulence, as we know, but also in the very worst of the Little Ice Age, the long, cold 17th century. The Little Ice Age was the coldest period in the last 8,000 years, and the period in which Hobbes was writing, but also Descartes, and all of these thinkers I know, Paul, that you know very well, uh, that all of these thinkers were, in essence, Little Ice Age thinkers, so too Malthus. And what was the claim? The claim was that inequality, turbulence, violence was the result of one or another version of natural law not enclosure, not exploitation, not imperialism. So when we address these very contemporary questions, I think it's crucial that we understand their roots. 
and their roots in a climate and class and imperial conjuncture that go deep into the heart of capitalism. Okay, so the way it's looked at, it tends to reinforce the status quo way of looking at it and doesn't really understand the roots of it, the causes of something. And this is presumably not just confined to the uh, ecological questions either. This is the way, surely, most of the world works at the moment, uh, and especially during the neoliberal period. I think um, it's this, uh, this inability to conceptualize this thing in its movement uh, and, and its change and its contradictions. Uh, it, it really doesn't take us very far. So you're saying you don't think there's much chance of a, a meaningful agreement uh, in Egypt at all? Well, of course, the real action insofar as there's ever real action occurs every five years. So like in Paris or Copenhagen or, or Edinburgh uh, last year, and, and much of this is, is theater for the time being. I mean, uh, uh, your prime minister wasn't even going to go. I don't know if he's changed course or not. He's gone. Um, yeah. uh, so uh, we understand that this is pure theater and it's a sign of the bankruptcy of the imperial bourgeoisie in the world, that they have no explicit program for a post-capitalist transition to deal with the climate crisis. I don't think that means they have no program. I think that's a mistake too. Uh, you can see it percolating in different parts of the world. I think America's unipolar imperial fantasies are part of a program for an authoritarian climate solution. So Nancy Pelosi last year, when confronted by Abby Martin in Edinburgh, said, well, the climate crisis is a natural security crisis. In other words, a national security question. And so we see this kind of dynamic again and again. I think we also see it with the Club of Rome. Uh, yes, they're still around. The World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab, you will own nothing and you will love it. There's a vision for a techno-scientific authoritarian transition there as well. China's Belt and Road has a very different approach and its own distinct set of contradictions. So while the, the imperial bourgeoisie certainly doesn't have a coherent plan, you can see bubbling up uh, measures to deal with the climate crisis, which indeed have been brewing since uh, the early 1970s. Right. And this, this solutions that they have... Uh tend towards this authoritarian, even semi-fascist kind of solutions, really coinciding with this economic crisis that we now have, You're then entering a new period of history altogether, politically speaking, in, in some ways, a very dangerous period. I think, I think you're right there. So I see that from reading what you've written, that this concept of anthropogenic climate change, you think is uh, one-sided, inadequate, and you've challenged that. And why have you taken that up? Why have you taken up this challenge with this kind of, you know, the common sense, the conventional concept of anthropogenic climate change? Why have you done that? Well, there are at least three layers to this argument that the climate crisis is not anthropogenic made by humans, but capitalogenic made by capital. And what that means is the broad set of cultural class, imperial technological relations that swirl around capital as a rich totality of many determinations, as Marx might say. And so one of the reasons is that, first of all, obviously, humanity is not a collective actor. 
So it's demonstrably false on that basis. But once we begin to ask, well, what is the history of ideas and the history of power behind this notion of man versus nature, we see very clearly that a great ideological trinity was born in the centuries after 1492, man, nature, and the civilizing project, which took various forms of Christ, liberalism, markets, technology. We can identify different forms in different eras. Indeed, quite possibly, sustainability is another incarnation of this long-standing civilizing project. And who were the civilizers? They were the thinkers. They were the planners. They were the possessors and owners of wealth and power. When we think of Descartes, and I think, therefore, I am in these two essences, that was one of the first mature expressions of the boss's view of the world, right? The thinkers uh, control everything, and then all other reality is responsible for doing the work for enlightenment and for capital. So there, it, that might sound philosophical and abstract, but in fact, it's quite intimate when we look at the history of the environmentalism of the rich since 1968, which is man versus nature. And who is it that is to manage the contradictions? Well, uh, of course, we know at the end of the day, it's the super rich and powerful, but then let's look more specifically at what we call variously a professional managerial class, uh, a technician, intellect worker class, uh, that we see the, the development of whole infrastructures of power and ideology that say the problem, and this is explicit in the Anthropocene uh, discussion of uh, the Age of Man discussion, the problem is not uh, um, inequality, it's not a lack of democracy, it's ineffective management. And that's the boss's view of nature. So we wanna be very skeptical. And just historically, finally, let's give uh, credit and blame to those who deserve credit and blame. As the great radical folk singer Utah Phillips used to say, uh, we know who committed these crimes. They have names and addresses, just like you can go to Bristol and look at the families that profited from the slave trade. We know precisely who is responsible for the climate crisis, and they should be hold to account, held to account. So the capitalogenic uh, concept, how does that take us further and, um, and, and more deeper? How does that work in that sense? You have the, with this general thing of the anthropogenic, which is just humans in general. Here, is this a, more of a class-based view uh, of, of, of the way things are? So absolutely, it's a class-based view, but not in a simplistic, reductive sense, which unfortunately, even many socialists still adhere to. Yeah. So for, uh, for me and for the world ecology conversation in trying to make sense of the climate crisis, and that means making sense of capitalism, we insist that the, uh, the exploitation that goes on in the wage labor system, in the moneyed economy, depends on the appropriation of unpaid work of women, nature, and colonies. So as a shorthand, we might say for every proletariat, there must be a bioteriat and a femetariat of unpaid work provided by human and extra human natures. So this is a much more nuanced and I think a much more hopeful approach. It goes back to what Marx uh, says on the German, um, uh, on the Jewish question when he's quotes at the end, Thomas Munzer, the creatures too must go free. And for those who don't know, Thomas Munzer was living through the, one of the first great moments of capitalist extractivism and enclosure in central Germany, southern uh, Central Europe, southern Germany. And it was a period of dramatic transformation 
of the destruction of, of life and the poisoning of streams and all of this. So uh, Marx knew exactly what he was doing when he gestured towards that kind of politics. And class analysis in this wider sense, that is to understand the climate crisis as a class struggle in the web of life, is also important for politics like degrowth. Because we have seen after the 1970s, the imperialist forces imposed degrowth on Africa and Latin America above all. Now, of course, that's not the degrowth that today's degrowth activists are talking about, but they don't look at that nearly as much as they should. And what's necessary is the antidote to the Anthropocene's planetary management view of the problem. But what's necessary is the radical extension of working class control over investment decisions. And that's where everything comes to a head because the climate crisis is a class struggle. If we cannot impose democratic controls over investment, um, all bets are off. So it's impossible to go forward within the capitalist framework, that's what you're saying. And in a sense, the tendency of the falling rate of profit, the tendency to overproduce, all this adds to the, to the uh, stress on, on nature, really. And until that's taken away, what you're saying is we can't really make any progress on climate. Everything's been brought to a boiling point. Everything you just mentioned is, has been historically dependent on frontiers of cheap nature. And there are really four big cheaps, if you will. Labor, including unpaid work, food and agricultural capacity, that's a second. A third, raw materials, a fourth, energy. And we can argue about whether those should be three or six or nine or 27. Uh, but those are three of the big conditions for every great wave of capitalism. Those frontiers of cheap nature uh, have historically done something absolutely crucial that is relevant to questions of social unrest and geopolitical conflict, which is they have served as a kind of pressure release valve to allow for the restabilization of bourgeois rule and geopolitical order. So after World War II, for instance, the US reconstructs the world and there are cheap natures everywhere. And, and, and the United States really actively goes out uh, after those, both to fuel its own development and also to allow for Japan and Western European reconstruction. So those conditions are now over. And that means what we are seeing is a return to zero-sum political conflict. And that's what I think at the heart of the climate crisis. Okay, so you mentioned uh, the seven cheap things and, and you wrote about them. And you, do, you suggest that we need to embark on some seditious dreaming. Uh, do you have an example of that you could, you could share? What, what's a seditious dream? How are we going to make this transformation from where we are to something different, which is a big leap in history uh, and a revolutionary leap? How are we going to do this, Jason, do you think? Well, the, and you put your finger right on it that how... How is it going to unfold? What are the challenges of a transition period? Because we can all come up with whatever utopian imaginaries where we fish in the morning and we garden in the afternoon and we write poetry in the evening. We're all on board with this, but how do we get from here to there? And I think we need to be prepared to make much more difficult moral and political decisions than the left has up to this point been willing to do in the neoliberal era in any event. And I, I think, let me just present two tensions, one very hopeful and one more problematic. Yeah. Is, one is that if we look at the long history of how 
climate crises understood as climate class conjunctures, class in an open and flexible kind of way, have fit together, we see that moments of significantly unfavorable climate change, especially in the global in the northern hemisphere, have been moments of civilizational crisis, of great destabilization of the rulers. So this was the case in the Bronze Age crisis of the 12th century BCE. It was the case with the crisis of the Roman West. So in the East, uh, the climate conditions are a bit different and more manageable. They have more to do with drought. In the, in the West had to do with extreme cold, which was much more difficult to manage under uh, conditions of uh, agriculture at that time. And uh, we see it again with the crisis of feudalism in the uh, early 14th century, the arrival of the Little Ice Age. We have it again in the era of Hobbes, a long cold 17th century, partly set in motion by the destruction of American Indian peoples in the Western hemisphere, which drew down carbon dioxide concentrations and fueled what Maslin and Lewis called the Orbis spike. So ours is not the first capitalogenic crisis. So, in any event, all of those moments are, are periods of political crisis and instability in which there is space for the producing and reproducing classes to assert their interests. So after the crisis of Western Rome, peasants reoccupy the villa, they occupy the villas and repurpose them, they reestablish village life. And essentially there's a golden age for peasantries in Western and Central Europe. There's a golden age for peasants and workers after the Black Death in, in the 1350s. There's a golden age for uh, uh, workers and peasants when they gain traction to struggle against the landlords and the predator classes. That, and so climate shifts are an important part of the story, not because climate determines anything, but because the conditions of the class struggle and the web of life have climate sort of woven into their DNA, if you will. So moments of climate crisis are moments of political possibility. That's the first lesson. The okay. second is much darker, and we've seen this across the history of the 20th century, um, epitomized in the words of the U.S. Army major in February 1968 during the Tet Offensive, when he told Peter Arnett of the Associated Press, it became necessary to destroy the village in order to save it. And we've seen that again and again and again. We saw it with the Paris Commune. We saw it with the Soviet uh, uh, Union. We saw it with uh, Vietnam, of course, uh, countless times across the world. So we need to stop pretending that the imperialist forces are uh, unprepared to lay waste to any oppositional challenge. And that so when we put those two together, that's enough to give you a big headache. It is. It is. But uh, without a headache, you can't find a cure. So. It's a political challenge as well for the left. It has, in my view, I've been doing a lot of work on the theory of the state. And I think this is something which has been neglected quite a lot by too many people on the left. The question of power and power structures and the exercise of power by the state. Because if you're going to make this change, we have to come up with a new political framework, which is totally different from what we have today. In order to enable this power to be transferred, to workers and peasants and stuff, you'd need a vehicle, a political system vehicle for it to, to, to it can't just happen, can it? I'm afraid, can it? <laughs> You're absolutely right. And it requires a state that is both, uh, that both has the capacity to defend itself, 
and to uh, organize large scale planning and at the same time is willing to mobilize the working classes uh, to uh, transform uh, all of, well, all of the world in fact. And so I think in that light, uh, much of the left has been way too dismissive in a knee jerk kind of way of uh, efforts at socialist reconstruction across the 20th century. And it's like you either have to hate it all or you have to find a particular project you want to celebrate everything about it. And of course, both are silly. We need to have a very sober balance sheet when we look at the history of the Soviet Union, the history of China, Cuba's remarkable yet contradictory uh, responses to uh, all, all manner of social transformations, but especially the end of cheap Soviet oil. There are some glimpses and we can't do without the state. My friend Christian Parenti says, you can, you can say whatever you want about the state, but the state is always called in moments of crisis. That's so true. there's no such thing of having uh, 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 no political theory. You have one, whether you like it or not. Sorry. This is true. I mean, it's the same. But the Anthropocene is a political theory in itself, and it fills the vacuum. It fills the gap and the absence of a, an alternative narrative from ourselves. It actually occupies the space, but doesn't have to, but it does occupy the space. Uh, it's part of that hegemony, really, that Gramsci talked about, I think, absolutely part of this, you know, the capitalists don't have not really ruled by force in recent times, but this ideological power is very significant, and you've addressed that. So well, anyway, wait, let's let's not go. Let's I, uh, let's look at this though. For the U.S., the U.S. Uh, the Tufts Military and Tufts University has a military intervention project, and they've identified over 500 instances of American foreign military intervention in its history. Over one third of those has have occurred since 1999, overlapping perfectly with the Anthropocene. So, what we need to be asking to mainstream environmentalists and to academics who celebrate the Anthropocene is where is the critique of American imperialism and American militarism? You're right, it's not exactly ruled by force, but when the US has special forces units operating, I'm not kidding you, in three quarters of the world's countries, yeah. we are dealing with, I think, an inflection point in, uh, in American soft hegemony towards a hard hegemony, which has been in motion for a while. No, I think you're right. Any last thoughts, Jason, before we... Uh... I think, I think the, here's the biggest uh, lacuna, if you will, in radical eco-socialist thinking about the climate crisis and socialism. And there are some important exceptions to what I'll say, but it is the inability to think through precisely what I just mapped out, America's increasingly aggressive unipolar hegemony and its militarism in the context of the climate crisis. And indeed, this applies whatever your position is on the war in Ukraine. This is a war at the end of cheap nature. It is a climate crisis war. And it's not only the result of the end of cheap nature in all sorts of complex ways, but it is also amplifying the drive to the planetary inferno. So if we are saying, um, as those courageous and in many ways inspiring activists, throwing the soup on the Van Gogh, saying stop oil, Let's start saying stop imperialism, stop the war machines and look at what's happening because this is not a footnote to environmentalist politics. The German Greens are some of the most aggressive pro-war advocates right now. In fact, they are now going after their coalition partners, the Social Democrats were cozying up to, in their view, to the Chinese. 
So we want to bring this question of anti-imperialism to the heart of green politics, whether it's a new deal, degrowth, whatever it is. Okay. Thanks for listening. Go to realdemocracymovement.org for more information about our podcast. You'll find a free political education course there and also a chance to engage with others in discussing how we make system change. Thanks.